0: Jacob, I have a question for you. I want to know what you think the glue is that holds your workshop together. That's what I want to know. What is
1: the glue? So my initial response was conferring. And the reason I say that is because it's, it's what informs every ounce of my workshop. It informs what I teach the next day. It informs how I approach students. It informs what pieces I select for the mini lesson. It informs uh, my data and what I do with it. It informs my assessment. It informs how I talk about my students to themselves and their parents and administration. It informs how I talk about Everything on this podcast Um, But that seems like a boring Answer so I want to spice it up A little bit okay so if I Had to pick something other than that I think I would say The glue that Holds the workshop together Is my Dedication To getting out of Their way you know okay so when I first Started teaching right I was horrible and then I eventually discovered like the Ron Clark Academy and Kagan and stuff like that. Like I've mentioned on the podcast several times and that led me to, I, those things spoke to me because it allowed me to use my personality to my strengths. I saw in those strategies and in those, that kind of classroom management that I could, I was like, Oh, I have a big personality. I can totally channel that into these, ways of teaching, into these strategies, into these systems that would allow for me to bring that energy in an effective way for uh, the classroom. And that's why it really stuck with me and it stuck with me for a long time. And that really did pave the way for my just success in the classroom. But I think when, like, I think that made me a good teacher, but I don't think that got my kids learning at the height that they needed to so to speak, right? They needed more than just a teacher that was charismatic and engaging to them, right? They needed something else. And so I had to get better at my practices and whatnot. And as I go forward in the lifelong journey that is reading and writing workshop, the more I find myself asking the question, how can I set up an experience for them to live through whether that, you know, like a poem, for instance, if I want them to experience a poem, how do I do that by getting out of their way? How do I put less chastain on the poem and allow them just to experience it uh, themselves? And then that goes to, okay, so how do I get out of the way with their exploration of this? Because I have, as a teacher, right? I have my standards. I have what I need to do. I have my Uh, curriculum that's kind of keeping pace. You know, I have things that I need to hit because we have tests just like every other teacher, yada, yada, yada. But I find that those things matter so much less when I let them explore because the kids get there at their own pace. And so the more I'm not dragging them along, trying to get them somewhere, trying to artificially put like barriers on the workshop to get them somewhere and rather trust the process itself, trust the learning and discovery process, meaning I get out of the way so they can learn. Uh, I find that the workshop is so much better. The, when my workshop is going the best, it's when I'm out of the way. It's when they're working and I'm at best, I'm a good mentor uh, or at worst, I'm a good mentor at best. I'm simply there to be someone uh, to bounce ideas off of a fellow writer, a fellow reader, and they're just kind of rolling and I just kind of serve as a, a guide. So, to speak, so I would say that's the glue that really does bind my workshop to something that goes beyond just talking about workshop, talking about authenticity, but actually allowing students to do learning.
0: Well, with that, everyone, this is Craft and Draft, and welcome. That was Jacob Chastain, still is. I'm Pam Ochoa, and Uh, here we are. We're going to do another podcast. So what's our topic today, Jacob? That's my second question. I got two in tonight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're talking grammar today. And this Mm. came about Mm. because we've been, you know, I was at Abydos training and you were the trainer. And there's when you're with a bunch of English teachers, what happens is grammar, grammar instruction always comes up, especially if there are teachers in the building, um, that range in their experience. So if there are, if they're older teachers, they tend to love the grammar practice more. The younger teachers are kind of, they can go either way, right? I've met young teachers (laughs) who are diehard grammarians and, and live and die on that Hill. And I've also met teachers that are like, I don't know what a to be verb is. Right? So those that, that, Gamut is the interesting part when you talk to English. English teachers are passionate. There's a reason this podcast exists, okay? We're a bunch of dorks, and everyone who's listening <laughs> and sharing this episode and, like, just join in to talk about this stuff, um, I think we're all into this and into having these discussions. About, like, who else can get excited about commas, m dashes, and dialogue, and, and punctuation, Like, all the stuff, right? So that's what we're talking about today, and more importantly, we're talking about do we explicitly teach grammar outside of practice, outside of what we're doing, is there value in, let's say, sentence diagramming or something else like that? Is there value in no red ink? I'm sure tons of teachers listening to this are aware of what no red ink is, and et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to meander through this conversation as we do, Miss Ochoa, but everyone, welcome to Craft and Draft. First of all, how are you doing today? You've been busy. Let's start there. Okay, let's let's not jump straight into the podcast because you've been you, you do people don't realize that you are constantly do you do more than me, like just in terms of like every task that you're doing. And you're, I don't know, like age wise, like, I mean, I could be your son, right? So like, well, you, yeah, you're
0: the same age as my son.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you have, you, I feel like you have more energy than me. Like we were at training and then you were like, okay, I'm going to go bowl and I'm going to go do my taxes and you know, whatever. You're just like always <laughs> doing something. So I want to know, how's your energy today how are you feeling uh, knee-deep in one of the most rigorous writing trainings out there how are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay I get energized by teaching and all that stuff so I think that's part of it um, I like I like doing it every day it's kind of fun but uh, I have other things that have to be done you know I'm, I'm got this big not a big huge house but it's not a small house you know and I gotta maintain it. And we had that disaster. I'm still not completely over the disaster. I helped some people that moved down with me and their stuff is still here and I'm trying to move around all of that. So I've been moving boxes, moving shelves. I've mowed my yard today. I went to go take care of some dogs. They're big dogs. You know, like when they stand up, you're like eye to eye, three of them in the same house with three cats. So when I went over there, it was like, it was kind of a mess. What kind of dogs because, are they huh
1: are they like great danes or something
0: well they're about, almost the size of a great dane i mean they're huge dogs i don't even know what kind they are but they're um i mean they're really big i mean i know one looks like she's got german shepherd in her i think they've got i don't think there's a rottweiler but they're they're not they're not uh thick like a rottweiler but they're not They're just, they're big. I guess they're about the size of a Great Dane. My Great Danes are bigger because my brother used to have a Great Dane. So I know that Big Boy was a lot bigger than these dogs as far as height, but these are bigger than my Australian Shepherd. I can't tell you what they are. I think they're a mix, but they're real good. They know their names and they knew what I was there for. So they went straight outside and they went straight to their, what I'm amazed is, they go to their exact bowl in the garage, so anyway. But that's, that's my that's my niece. She's a exotic animal. Uh she works with exotic animals. And she runs a bed office. So that's what she does. So she always has some kind of animal there. But uh anyway, they had to go out of town on an um, kind of a little emergency thing, so. I called her, but anyway, yeah. So what I do, I I try to try to get caught up. That's what I'm doing, Jacob.
1: It's the life of ketchup, know. right? I mean, that's that's teaching, though. Is I do like ketchup. It, it always yeah, <laughs> it always feel like, uh, you know what's funny? Every time I hear people say ketchup, it reminds mm-hmm. me of a friend I had where he was insistent on catsup, and I don't know if catsup was that ever a thing. Like, is that a real item?
0: That's a real spelling. Yeah.
1: But is that like an item? Like is catsup a product?
0: Yeah, it's ketchup. No. <laughs> it's the same thing, Jacob. I
1: mean, it is the same thing, but is Hang on. The is the
0: same thing as K-E-T-C-H. Yep.
1: Another term for ketchup. What on earth?
0: I told you. Why they do they hang
1: it. on? Why do they call it catsup? In some parts of the USA, you will likely still hear ketchup referred to as catsup, but this name actually comes from Chinese origin. In China, oh. there is a type of fish sauce, ketchup. Uh, Sorry if I mispronounced that to anyone listening. And one theory is that the name catsup originates from this word, as the sauce was traditionally used with fish. To season the dish, so I wonder if cats up. So my fa- the family that I'm talking about, right? My friend that I had, are
0: they from California?
1: They're, no, they're from Louisiana.
0: Oh, Louisiana! Okay. A lot of
1: seafood in Louisiana.
0: Yeah, I would imagine be on the border. I mean, I was that's what I was thinking on the.
1: So I wonder if there's baseline. some origin there. I mean, there's a whole look. Maybe. I'm not the only one asking these questions. There's a lot of people talking about this, but apparently, I did not know that. So this is another example of just the power of words, right? Like there's a, <laughs> <laughs> You think something's different. This has been living in my brain for probably 25 years of my life and I'm finally getting some type of closure on it. So
0: Well, there you, know, you go.
1: It is what it is. So, let's talk about this. So this I feel like this uh, in oddly enough, this directly translates to what we're talking about here, which is you know, there are in, there in the reading and writing world, there are debates common, especially if you're on Twitter, you guys. No one should be on Twitter, in my opinion. It is the most negative, uh, dogmatically driven place to have dialogue with anyone ever, and it's, it's horrible because everyone is impassioned but everyone you have to say things in short things so it limits your ability to be nuanced which the majority of conversations need to be nuanced which is why i love podcasting but um in any case if you are on twitter and going through this mental abuse every single day you have probably seen uh the debates on you know the reading wars of the the quote-unquote science of reading um versus uh what do they call it they call it not whole brain brain Reading, they call it, <laughs> I got to Google this too. <laughs> the Hang on, I just, just drawn a blank. The science of reading versus, I bet it pops up, versus balance literally. There we go. See, it popped up. It was Balanced the first thing that popped up. Yeah. So... And for like, we're we're not going to go into that actual debate, but I'm saying this debate is, I feel like this is a cousin of that. The grammar conversation is a cousin of the, the science of reading versus kind of the balanced of literacy approach. I highly recommend everyone go check out these things because it's very fascinating. But the grammar approach is something that it's contentious. And now you've dealt with this, um, both as a teacher and a presenter. So I'm going to pitch this to you because I want you to frame this. Okay. I want to, I want us to give an accurate framing of the conversation and then break down the debate and the pros and cons. That's, that's kind of, I think that'll be a good way to address right. this. That's fair to all parties because we don't know who's listening. We don't know right. who, whose opinions are what. So we want to be fair because there's no reason not to be it. it we just want to do the best we want for our students. So uh, how do these, how do these two sides break down? in grammar according to what you've experienced um, as a coach, teacher, trainer, all of the above?
0: Well, I mean, you have the pure grammarians out there, you know, probably from when I grew up or even before that. They're strict with their grammar. They feel like it needs to be taught in isolation. You know, you have to learn the grammar first before you can move on. Um, they, If they don't know their parts of speech, if they don't know the structure of a sentence, if they don't know how to diagram in some some instances, if they can't, say the definition of each one of the words, you know, like, um, oh, I don't know, coordinating conjunction, you know, those types of things. If they don't know that stuff, then, then the kids can't move forward. So they, they have a tendency to make it a strict grammarian class, so to speak, and have to learn all that before we do the writing. We might do some writing, but it's definitely gonna be prompted writing, etc. Then you have the holistic kind of approach, where they're going to learn it by by writing. It's just going to happen. It, it happens with babies. They know how to, you know, if you just talk with them and speak with them and model for them, they're going to learn the language. And so I think it's the same way with grammar. They, um, you know, if we just practice writing every day, then the grammar is going to come, and they'll end up learning. It's not that big a deal anyway. Uh, they know they're already using complete sentences. Why should they have to be able to name or parse those sentences? A true gram I mean a pure grammarian will parse the sentences. The other uh, side will not spend their time on it. Is that the two sides? Does that sound about right?
1: Yeah. I mean I think that's a, a fair kind of assessment. You know, it's it's one that, you know, people feel like if we I feel like the, the on the grammarian side, I feel like their entire goal is to obviously get kids to internalize the writing rules so they, they can write well, um, mm-hmm. you know, and this, this is not like new, right? Like this is not a, th- this is not a position that is new to just kind of like the teachers today. This is, goes back to the Greeks, right? Like they were... They, they specifically talked about like ways of writing, like there's old grammar books, like from way back when, like deep into history. So this is mm-hmm. to, to call this a nuanced issue. Um, it's probably an understatement because it's been around for so long, for a long time. People are like, this is how you write. And it kind of serves. Right. Let's 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 defend this uh, side for just a moment because it, it makes sense. If you want people to be educated and if you want them to sound educated and if you want them to be able to communicate effectively, which was far more important, uh, the older you go back, the less technology is involved, the more it's important for you to know the grammar rules um, because communication, it was. It, it it didn't happen instantly, right? Like if you like, you know, if you go back to the Greeks, for instance, right? You write a letter and you send it out, and it's gibberish, and no one can understand it. You just you, it's gonna take. It took you however long to write it. it. takes three months to get to where it needs to go. They don't understand it, so now you've wasted like half a year on this letter. <laughs> I guess so. I never thought about it that way, but that's probably right. So it, it became extremely important, especially among the thinking class, right, the, the, the elite mm-hmm. of society, um, to be able to communicate in a way that everyone kind of understood. So they wrote down these rules. They created rules about what does this look like? What do these symbols uh, mean, et cetera, et cetera? So to, I, I think that's a good tradition. I think the tradition of being able to communicate at a certain level is something that is fantastic to uphold. Now to shift this a little bit, I think uh, the fear is that if we stop doing that, what we do is we raise kids that can't communicate well, they can't create resumes that look good, they can't advocate for themselves well, they can't write to their congressman, you know, if you want to get political, they can't Mm -hmm. write an email to their boss, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see why the fear compounds over time. Now, let's flip it though. So on the other side, you have people who are like, well, you know, kids who read a lot and write a lot tend to understand grammar rules kind of naturally. Does it matter that they know that they're creating a compound sentence if they can write one? I don't know. And that's kind of where they shrug is they, they go for the kind of volume model in the, in the time model. Now, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any, uh, studies specifically on time it takes for grammar for proper grammar to show up in student writing you might be able to correct me on this but um studies that show like if you teach grammar in isolation like this if you do all the comma rules in isolation for one group and the other group you uh read a lot of stuff with commas and stuff like that and you have them write it maybe even model which which students grasp it quicker has there ever been a study on the speed of such knowledge
0: i don't know i mean that's i'm not sure i mean i know that there's been quite a few studies on 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 just how does grammar work within the writing process i know that there's some some studies there the importance of grammar i mean i don't know um good question but i don't have the answer
1: might be worth looking into. I, To my knowledge, I don't think there has been. I, that'd be a really hard study to do in the first place because mm-hmm. there's so much background knowledge that exists, right? It would have to be like how, like, for instance, if one group did better, it'd be like, okay, so what types of families were they raised in? Were there books in the house? Were they read too often? You know, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of non-controls to there, which by the way, which is why, like when we talk about definitive research and education those are the reasons why this is like hard like sociology is not biology right like right we we right. are a social science this is the realm mm-hmm. we we work in so for people who get frustrated with kind of conflicting research or no research that's why like this is hard <laughs> this is hard to prove yeah. in i and even don graves he there's a book called uh uh, children at work. I do believe I'm going to Google it. I read, I read the audiobook. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a combination of his research. Children want to write. It's called children want to write Donald Graves and the revolution in children's writing. It's like a sum, a summarization of his work and like Penny mm-hmm. Kittle's in there. Thomas Newkirk is in there. Um, Lucy Calkins is in there, all of them, right? But they're talking about the research, and in the beginning, they talk about how people criticized his work because it wasn't, they called it, it wasn't science, that's what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, the counter to that is, well, it, it's science, but it's a—it's not, you know, it's not an exact science. And that, well, and there probably is an exact science, but there are more exact scientists, right? <laughs> like, when, when we're dealing with psychology, sociology, all of those things, it, things get more blurry anyway all of that to say what were we about to say
0: well i was just gonna say that they did do um i think it's in i don't know the year 71 i think is what but donald graves and that whole consortium you're talking about they they did actually do um a research based study where they actually had a control group this is all done um in the new england area maybe in new jersey but anyway and so they actually had um a control group and was taught a traditional way and then another group that was taught in the way that they were trying to see if it would work and that's more of the workshop model more of the Donald Graves' model, the Nancy Atwell model, those kinds of things, Uh, Lucy Calkins, Dawn Murray, all of those, uh, Janet Emmick. And so they were all in there doing that. Um, And so that's when, um, I I think that's when they they realized that, and Donald Graves realized that uh, the way we've been doing it traditionally does not create writers. What creates writers is what we um, are now trying to propose. Which is workshop model, let the students write, choice, time, ownership. Mm -hmm. What's fascinating,
1: okay, and this gets to kind of the second half of the argument I was going to make, which is. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Uh, That was a perfect bridge, and I think that was a nice detour for this. It's a a better platform. So uh, we got the one side, right, this tradition of being able to communicate, uh, being able to communicate effectively, et cetera, et cetera. Um, his research, you know, was seventies, eighties, right? And a lot of that research was built on other research, et cetera, but kind of the workshop research that kind of drives a lot of this is kind of the seventies, eighties timeframe, right? Research after, but that was kind of like the core. So what ends up happening during this time is the rise of technology, right? We are the most literate society that has ever existed and by, I'm, I'm not saying just America, but like just the, the modern world where there's more literate people today than there has ever been in the history of the world ever, right? Literacy is not the actual problem anymore. People can write and people can communicate and communication still evolving, uh, today. John McWhorter, uh, is a fantastic. Uh, he's a linguist. He's getting popularized right now because he's a part of some, uh, debates and he's on a very big podcast, but he has a, he, he does linguistics and he was talking about, he has this great Ted talk about whether we should feel text talk, like fear text talk, you know, like LOL, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's fantastic because the, the essentially to boil his argument down is like, no, you shouldn't fear people texting and stuff like that. This is, you know, it's hieroglyphics in some way, right? It's the it's a return to form. Um, but uh, so people can communicate better than we've ever been communicating before. We have some, we have video, right? People can make videos. I can make a video right now and send it to literally thousands of people instantaneously. So when we talk about literacy, uh, the fear that people are going to not be able to communicate, et cetera, et cetera that specific part of the argument I don't think it holds any more. It was starting to lose hold in the seventies and eighties. And I think it's just getting more and more less valid because it's not, people can communicate just fine and, and language is changing. And I feel like this, the diehard, I feel like where the conversation starts to falter a little bit, when we start talking about the value of teaching grammar specifically, is I, I it's almost like clinging to something that's already dead. And I don't mean grammar's dead. That that's an over exaggeration, but I mean you're clinging to something that has already changed drastically, you know, except for like kind of the stuff that is timeless because of just the institution, like writing research papers in college kind of look the exact same because it's college. College doesn't move very fast. Education doesn't move, but the world moves, the world has changed. And so I don't know. Do you you think that's a, do you see where I'm going with that? Do you think that's a valid critique of the grammar side is that we're so literate Today that the fear of not being able to communicate effectively is lessened.
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, but I do think that Feel you have a valid to push point. Back if
1: you want to play some devil's advocate?
0: Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I just know. That... <laughs> okay. Well, I'll be the advocate. All right. So, anyway, uh, no. I mean, I think when you're looking at at grammar in general um, and liter- literacy today it has changed and that's one of the things about our English language for sure is it's always evolving it's always changing and it has been I mean and the reason I mean just think about going back to Canterbury Tales and Beowulf that is English so I don't know you go ahead and translate that I mean but I think that um I do think there is some things that are lost that I think is the I think I think the way we're moving, I think sometimes we might have a lost art in grammar. I do know that if you know the grammar in your own language, you can easily learn a language that is not yours uh, better. So the better you know your own grammar, the easier it is to pick up another language. I do know that um so i do i and and all grammar to me is it is the patterns of our our linguistic abilities the, the pattern of our language so i i do think that texting and all of that stuff um you know i do think that i think it does hinder understanding just the other day my daughter you know we're, we've been texting back and forth she decided to move out and so she's still got to move some stuff out of my room out of her room but uh she's like i don't know what she texted me but I did not understand it. I think she wanted me to take care of the baby. But anyway, she showed up like an hour early. And I'm like, why are you so early? I thought she goes, well, I told you. And I'm like, no, you, she didn't tell me the whole thing. She just told me in code what she was doing. And there was nowhere in there that said she would be arriving an hour earlier than what she stated. But according to her, she did. <laughs> so i am asking her what time. She told me six. She misunderstood and thought I meant, what time are you going to work? I mean, what time are you going to be out? I wanted to know when she was going to work so that I could take care of the baby. And then she said six. So that was all on a text. She shows up at five. I'm still asleep. And she's mad because I'm not awake. You know what I mean? So you're like... Uh, whoa. So I told her, I said, you're going to have to start talking to me and calling me because this texting thing is causing a communication issue. Now, is that a lack of literacy? I don't think so, but I do think that uh, when we decide to change our language on our own, I think sometimes there is miscommunication. So uh, now, whether it's directly taught or, you know, that's, that's the part where the, um, I think the conflict comes in is how do you go about making sure that the people who speak their language, like in our case, English, how do you do so in such a way that all people can communicate
1: equally? See, and my my argument, my fundamental, the core of why I believe that grammar shouldn't be taught— Outside of practice, why it shouldn't be taught in isolation, why it shouldn't be done in computer programs that reward kids for selecting the right answer um, boils down to a philosophical idea. Well, not even philosophical, but I think just a an immutable fact about language is that it's constantly changing. And so when we have discussions about how should these things be taught, it is I think it's a. I don't know. I, I I think it's a an uh, a clinging to academia, and I think the people that cling to it the hardest are the people that were most successful at it. I think the the I think people who really love grammar and you know maybe they love sentence diagramming. I don't know honestly. I, at the Abydos training I was sitting with someone who loves sentence diagramming but she absolutely she said no student should ever have to do this she was like I like it because I'm a dork but this is not how it should be taught so like I don't know sentence diagramming may be the the the, the exception to the rule so to speak but in terms of teaching outside of this I think a lot of people, you know, they, they love the terms and they love all the, the nuances of language. And I think that's awesome. They should go be linguist and whatnot, but in terms of actual productive, empowering education in our classrooms, I don't know. Like I find the argument soft in terms of, do my students need to know what these terms are, uh, In order to be successful in their life. Now, does that mean I don't use them? No, the terms are being used. The, the, when I reference it, if we're looking at something, it gets used, but do I care if they can recite that term back to me as long as they're writing it effectively? No. And I even think there's room to talk about the term. Like if you're conferring with a student, you say, hey, this, I think this would work better. You're like, Hey, do you know what this is called? No, no. And then you can inform them. I think that is such a more transformative practice, right? If a student writes a run on sentence and then you show them how to do a compound, for instance, and then you're like, look at this. You know what that is? That's a compound sentence. And then you explain why. Boom. That learning is instantly applicable to what they're doing. It instantly applies to their actual learning. And so it's, it's going to be used more because they have real world context versus just doing it on a computer program. And I just, I don't know. It's, I've seen it work so many times. It's honestly hard to not believe that that works, but people do. We, we feel it all the time.
0: Sounds like to me, you line up with constant weavers, uh, grammar within the context uh study there's she's got two books on grammar within the context it's constant yeah. Constance weaver and so really that's more of a happy medium from when i first started so you're pure grammarian the holistic approach and then maybe in the middle we need to meet somewhere in the middle maybe that's why everybody's a little confused, but, and that's pretty much what, what we promote, uh, you know, when I was doing my, tr- the training, um, you know, I, when we actually got into the grammar that day, I mean, we could, you know, we actually showed how students could go back into their writing. Uh, they mark up their papers looking for certain things. And then they, they look at the ratio of items in their paper. And then now you've got a reason to talk about it you know and so they they do it to see they they like look for first words for example you know and when they're looking at those first words they might have too many prepositions one of the are pronouns or whatever and so uh not prepositions but um pronouns is what i was thinking of and so like if they were, if they say he they we and that's how they start all their sentences and we actually had a participant when they went through there. That's one of the things that they said. They said, oh my goodness, I have like, you know, I don't have I everywhere, but I have all these pronouns. And so my question to her was, and of course I use my little grammar term, where's your antecedent? Do they have an antecedent? And so, um, you know, then I had to explain what antecedent was, but, you know, cause I like kind of throwing those terms out there. But anyway, and then she looked up and she's like, I don't have these, I didn't talk about that. I don't have a name for my character. I have no names for my character. So I've referred to all my characters as he, she, and they. So she realized that she needed to go back and actually uh, insert some names there. So um, so I do think that they need to go back in uh, and they need to know it in such a way that they can go back in and make, the writers can go back in and make a decision about if they need to make changes or not, like you said. But uh, when it comes to terms Uh, and and also with diagramming too the the thing is I like to diagram sentences I do and uh and I actually took a grammar course in college I mean I had a whole I mean I've got three hours of a I think it was a three-hour course yeah three-hour course it was Dr. Keating uh she's no longer with us uh but I was fascinated by her class and it was probably one of the hardest classes that I took because I realized when I was in high school and junior high that um, nobody really well in junior high I remember them teaching grammar but I never got it so like in junior high my experience is um, I remember they would open up the grammar book and then they would say okay do all of the ones and and identify I need you to circle I don't know the verb and then draw a line to an arrow to the modifier. And, you know, and so the whole lesson was like, well, what's a modifier? Where's a modifier? I mean, I remember being lost at seventh grade, not knowing what a modifier was. And I would just get bad grades because I couldn't, I always drew my arrow to the wrong direction. So to me, it was the lesson, and then we had a diagram. But what happened is the focus of the lesson was no longer on grammar. It was how to diagram correctly, how to do my arrow correctly, how do I circle my word correctly, you know, those kinds of things. And so I think, I think with the pure grammarian, I, I, I guarantee you, I didn't learn anything. I remember being lost. And it wasn't until I took my grammar course in college that I at least had some understanding of what was going on. But I tell you, when I really learned grammar, and that was when we had to teach it, because I started teaching, what, 34 years ago, and we had to teach it in isolation, because that was in our curriculum. So when I first started before Abydos, before my workshop model, I had grammar lessons. And it wasn't until I started teaching grammar that I learned grammar. But I guarantee you, my kids didn't learn it. And nor did I see better writing because of it. And it wasn't until I became workshop-minded and teaching grammar within the context and doing what you're talking about, and that is get putting them in a situation where they have to actually go back into their writing, re-enter it, and try to figure out, you know, do I have too much of something? Did I combine my sentences? If I need to combine my sentences, how do I go about doing that? Okay, now you can open the door for semicolons and, you know, coordinating conjunctions. And, and what's the difference between a coordinating conjunction and a subordinating conjunction? And, you know, Jeff Anderson teaches awuba sentences for, you know, he's got a, co- and then other people have taught fanboys for coordinating. But then what happens is the kids know, oh, I have to have a fanboy or I have to have an awuba sentence, but those are limited So I do think there's a point in time. I think that's a good place to enter, you know, when you teach them the little acronyms, but, or I think mnemonic devices, but then I think you have, once they get to a certain age, maybe between seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, right in there, uh, you know, if they're interested, then I think you confer and and help the students along. I I don't know. I think it's a a tough one to do. I think it's um, tough to make sure you spend time on it and, And you sure don't want to convolute the language so that the kids can't get it.
1: You, that was gold. All of that. Like this podcast can be over right now, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that was, (laughs) it was gold because like, I think the, the here, I think you pointed out one of the best concerns right every teacher is going to rely on whatever they feel most comfortable with right ultimately Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. for people who are grammarians be a be a grammar nerd do you dude like we need people like you like like if i didn't have editors like there's a i like i have learned so much going through you know publishing one book and then now two books and whatnot and just learning um uh, just about language and how it works and whatnot, because a lot of mine is kind of learned through the furnaces of just writing and what's effective writing and whatnot. And, the, you know, I remember being in middle school and diagramming sentences and getting these sentence worksheets and whatnot, and none of that made me a writer, right? That was that was the stuff of writing. And like you said, I think you pointed out something amazing, which is it becomes so much more about how to how to show what you know versus just do what you know. And I think that's the clear, I think that's the power of workshop, right? Is because you can, you can have grammar mini lessons and you can do, you know, something like Jeff Anderson's a pattern of power. You could do something, um, like no red ink or something like that, but the workshop forces it back into working. So students have to do the work and whatnot. So if you're running a good workshop, uh, you know, I think it, it, it balances out, so to speak. Now for my personal taste, and I think, um, you're kind of the same way is we lean far more into just kind of the natural progression of things. And we trust the process and we, we trust that we can talk about these things in context. So if we're showing a great, you know, if we, if we need to talk about, um, complex sentences, I keep using these, whatever. If we if we talk about complex compound sentences, um, then we would pick a passage that has those. And we might talk about why are these effective? How would this be different if it was punctuated differently? Like there's all kinds of ways you can do that in a way that's engaging to the student, but it isn't so boring. Like you might love grammar. 99% of the world doesn't care. Right. (laughs) Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's the, now this gets into, and this might be a great podcast for another time, but the, the debate between like, do we emphasize academia over love? Right. Like there's people that criticize, You know, people like Donald Miller, like focusing on reading love, for instance, um, and trying to get their kids to do that because they're like, well, I don't really care if they read. I need to understand the value of Beowulf or Hamlet or et cetera, et cetera. And that that's an interesting debate that we can get into. But we're not getting to that right now because we're already 42 minutes into this podcast. But Uh, um, I I was about to go. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) I mean we can, but we're gonna be going for a while. But the I, I think that's the interest I think that's an interesting debate to have in terms of grammar. Is it more important that someone can talk about these things and write great sentences, or is it more important that someone wants to write those sentences in the first place? And I think that question defines what your classroom looks like. I think it defines what your workshop looks like. I think it defines how you approach students. I think it defines pretty much everything you do in writing. Maybe not with those words, but is it more important that they know this or is it more important that they care to do what they're learning at all? And I think that is... I don't know. That is the drive for this. And I, it might sound ridiculous to talk about grammar in that way. It's like, dude, just learn your dang grammar and, and move on or, 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 you know, just like learn it or, or not. But I don't know. I, I feel like
0: go ahead. Well, all I know is some of my biggest arguments or no, maybe not arguments, but falling out. I don't know. Um, I've actually lost friendship over grammar. So, you know, I, I know it's a big deal. And, uh, And you know why is it? Well, because I I well, some people believe that they should. That you know, one example was this one teacher that I worked with, and I actually taught her son. And so I go in. Well, first of all, she she was trying to be helpful, and she ran off all these pages of the students had to find the prepositional phrases first before they can move on to any part of the sentence and so she gave me i think there were 20 questions 20 sentences on the front to parse and 20 on the back. And so that was 40 sentences. She ran off the copies for me. I did not ask for the copies. And then she gave them to me and I went, well, I'm not, thank you, but I don't do grammar this way. And then she was mortified because I was teaching her son. And she thought that, oh my God, I'm going to ruin her kid. Well, then later on when the student, her son got into high school, she did have to come in and tell me that what I did was right because her son came back and said, I'm the one that knew all the answers, mom, because I learned it the way Ms. Ochoa taught me. So he actually stood up for me later on about three or four years later. But uh, but the the way I, one of the things too, I just want to say this, and I'm not sure how much time we have, but I do know that one of the best things that you can do if you want to teach sentence structure and you want students to really uh, get into the grammar and learn it so that it does transfer to their writing. And Kilgallen does this, but his book is pretty hard if you're going to do it. But ha- like you mentioned, it, this is what made me think of it. When you talked about complex, you're talking about complex compound sentences and you keep bringing it up. Well, I know why you bring it up because it's one of the biggest parts of our uh, curriculum and our standards that we have to we have to teach in the seventh grade. But if you have students break sentences apart so when they find these great sentences in their reading right then you have them break those sentences apart what does it look like if they if they had not combined those sentences now what does it look like when you put it together also you can have the students imitate so imitation sentence separation and sentence combining are the three major things that will get those students into learning grammar without actually teaching all that other stuff, but they're actually having to manipulate the sentences and they really learn sentence structure that way. So those are, I think, some of the three best ways of doing it. I just wanted to make sure that was said because you well, made me think of it. I, I think,
1: you know, and to kind of put a capstone on this is mm-hmm. I like, I get why people are passionate about this. And I, I think it's interesting that, You could lose a friend over grammar, but I, I, well, and I I think that's interesting because I think it's ingrained into what it means to be an academic in some aspects. You know, there are being an academic, it's snobby. You know what I mean? Like what we do is snobby in a lot of ways, you know, being a teacher is, but here's where I think the disconnect kind of happens is uh, that, that snobbery, I don't have it because I'm not in that crowd. I'm really not. Like, I read, you know, quote-unquote highbrow literature a lot, and I've, you know, I have been guilty of judging people for not reading certain things or whatever. Um, full full stop, but I teach middle school kids, right? A lot of people that listen to this teach secondary kids. Some of them teach elementary We are in the business of working with young people trying to figure out if they want to be academics in the first place. I don't think we build the future of the people that want to go deep into that by ruining their experience with reading and writing by causing them to (laughs) answer questions on a computer program that doesn't care about them. You know, like. We live in the world of COVID right now, and uh, which has forced technology in a lot of good ways, but a lot of bad ways too. Like, the, I don't want my kids staring at computer screens all the time. I don't want them to be taught by computer programs that don't care about them. I want, I want, I believe, and I, I, I will die on this hill forever that the best teacher is a human being being real and honest with another person. I think that is the power of mentorship. I think that's the power of teaching and workshop is a combination of expertise and mentorship kind of coming together in a way that demystifies this, this learning process to where in a workshop, a teacher can go, I don't know what that means. Let's Google it. Right. Right. I don't know what this is. Let's look it up together. And it's this fun kind of process. And it shows that like, just because you're a teacher doesn't mean that you're the arbiter of all knowledge on this topic. And think it humanizes this experience. It creates less conflict with teacher and student. It creates less friction in terms of students not knowing something. I think in all honesty, I think these really big experts on grammar and all this other stuff, I think it's scary to be in their classrooms because kids they don't know this stuff. And honestly, they don't really care. So like, it's like it they, they brings up their filters immediately. And I just think that is not conducive to an environment where kids can go off. You can create a non-writer into a writer, a non-reader into a reader. I, I just don't think it works in those contexts. I think teachers that die on the hill of you need to know this, you need to know these terms, you need to do that. I think it works for some kids and they see that success and like, see, it works. But I think they're losing a lot of kids and, you know, they might decide that that's okay in their own philosophy, but I'm not okay with that. I want as many kids walking through my door, leaving, knowing that they are competent readers and writers, and that is not contingent on them being able to tell me every aspect of every grammar rule. Now they might go on and be like, I love grammar. Let's do this and go off into that land. But that's awesome. But that's probably 1% of the kids. Just like it's 1% that's going to go off and read Charles Dickens for fun and do and read this, these great, uh, pieces of literature for fun. Most people don't do that. And I think English teachers have to be okay with that. <laughs> I mean, in it all. honesty, like they just got to take a deep breath and realize not everyone's a dork the same way. I don't care. Like I learned math. I didn't care about math don't care at all social studies. I cared a little bit. I mostly cared about us history, but that was about it, which doesn't serve me well in a lot of classes. And in science, I cared about very specific things, but I mostly, I didn't care about the science. I cared about like the fun part of science, but like teachers have to be okay with that. And English teachers, I feel like we die on this hill a lot. We're like, no, you have to know these things. And I don't, if, and I'm going to bring this example up from our training, You know, if a class of English teachers who have gone through college, they've gotten their bachelor's, some of them their master's degrees, can sit with other people and go, I don't know these grammar rules, and they got that far not knowing them, does it matter? That's my question.
0: Does it matter? I would have to say probably not. If they got their degrees and they don't have to know all of it, I don't guess it matters that much. But I do want to say this, if it's okay. Closing thoughts
1: from Pam Ochoa.
0: You said, <laughs> you said that that kids don't care. I, I want to venture to say they do, when their writing is authentic and they they're about to go publish, and that is what you have to put them into in order for them to start caring, is they have to know that their words are going to be put out there. Just like you said, through your editing process, you sure have learned a lot with editors. And I think we have to put the students in that same boat, if you will, in our workshop so that they, you know, kind of promotes a natural or a, it's not artificial. its It's the real reason, you know, I do want to know more because I do want this to sound better to my friends. I don't want to sound not to my friends, but to other people outside my, my community. So
1: I don't want to steal that last word, but I think that's a hundred percent correct. I, th- when it comes to, when I say kids don't care, like they don't care about the, the terms and whatnot, but to the, I love that clarification because my students do care when they write something that is valuable to them, when they chose their topic, when they chose their genre, when they really care about what they want to say. And I go, Hey, you care about this? I don't get what you're saying here. All of a sudden, you know, they do. Okay. So how do I make it make sense? Then you got all kinds of investment and that is the magic of workshop and teaching. And you don't get that from computer programs or sentence diagramming. I'm sorry to say it, but with that, ladies and gentlemen, this has been crafted draft. I hope you enjoyed. This episode as much as we have, we're I, I'm sure grammar. I think grammar's come up a little bit on the podcast. I'm sure it'll come up again. If you have a question, if you have a rebuttal, if we didn't hit on something you think was valuable, or maybe we rip, maybe we misrepresented the grammarians out there. There's a place you can go to voice these complaints, concerns, thoughts, ideas. You can go to CraftAndDraftWorkshop.com. There is a tab at the top that says "Submit Your Questions." Click that give us your name, whatever. If you don't want to do your name, use a fake name, whatever you would like, submit your question. It goes directly to our DM box and we look at it and then we answer and respond to those questions on the podcast. So if you want us to do that, if you have something to say, go use that. If you want us to address a different topic altogether, you can do that as well. We love addressing conversations that you guys want to have. So sometimes we make a whole episode. Sometimes we just make it a question. Sometimes actually those are really the only two options. But this is the Craft and Draft Workshop. Uh, that's Pam Ochoa. I'm Jacob Chastain. We are seventh grade teachers here in Texas, rocking it out, loving our lives, enjoying what we do, um, talking about reading and writing. Workshop Craft and Draft is our own journal system. If you're curious about that, go check out previous episodes where we've talked about it. More information on that to come. But share this episode, like us on Facebook, subscribe and your podcast app of choice. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating or a written review of the podcast, letting other people know, share it with your PLN, your PLCs and know that we are here
0: for you.